Okay, so tonight, as promised, we're going to look at St. Augustine. Uh, the reason we're doing that is because Bentley Hart, uh, rather provocatively in his uh, new translation of the New Testament, said the universal salvation heaven-hell question boils down to a contest between Gregory of Nyssa and St. Augustine. Uh, you choose. <laughs> and last time we looked at the astonishing um, vision of the end times of, uh, of Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers, and tonight we will look at St. Augustine. St. Augustine. Uh, the, um, I call this the code error in Augustine's thought because this is uh, a very insidious uh, virus almost that you have to hunt down. And I think by the end of his life, Augustine was totally overcome by it. Uh, there's a very strong case which the Italian scholar Dr. O'Malley makes out that actually in his youth, Augustine was a universalist, heavily influenced by Origen without, without knowing who it was because he didn't really, he had access to Origen's thought but didn't really, didn't really know it was Origen. As he got older, he got crankier, um, as we all have to struggle with. Um, but uh, there's no doubt, there's no doubt, as a matter of fact, the more I've gone into this, the more I've frankly moved from a defensive pose on universal salvation to an offensive pose. I mean, if we've got it wrong, we've got it really, really wrong. And the code error in Augustine has, for whatever reason, Augustine became the dominant figure in the Christian tradition. And that dominance has led to disastrous consequences, in my view. Um, now, the way I study these things, just so you know, is I always spend most of my time with the original text. I don't so much read about them, I read the original text because that's what I've been trained to do and I just like going right back to the source. So, for my sins, um, I have been wading through uh, the city of God. Um, Somebody once wrote of another book, nobody ever wished it longer. Um, it is just a massive tome of over a thousand pages. Uh, but, but when I read and when I analyse, because liter literary analysis is my um, training, and in particular I have a bent to find the mind behind it. I don't care how many long words, or, I don't care it's a thousand pages, there's a mind behind it. And that's what I'm looking for, the mind behind it. And um, so that code error, unfortunately, really dominated the Western world. What do I mean by code error? Great story, of course, those of you who would know it. Um, the crash of the Mars Climate Orbiter, anyone remember that? Yep. What went wrong? Peter? Two different metrics. Two different metrics, yeah. So I had all these bright people on both sides swapping their specifications and the contractor was doing it in imperial measures. Yeah. And NASA wanted it in metres. And millions of lines of code got confused and changed the trajectory and it crashed. Um, so a code error can be the simplest of things, but it infects everything. And it doesn't matter how smart you are and how much work you've put in, a code error has disastrous consequences. Uh, so I'm looking at, I thought it was a very useful metaphor of the code error of, or, or code errors, plural, in Augustine. 
You remember that we talked about the lines of influence um, early on, and this was the map we drew that really St. Augustine uh, lies behind the Roman Church, but equally the Protestant Church. The Protestant Church, the Reformation, did not throw out um, his ideas of heaven and hell. They didn't challenge them. Um, and whilst they threw out some things, they didn't throw out the bulk of it. I've added one thing to this which, uh, diagram, which was not on the first diagram, which is the role of Justinian. Now, Justinian was, a, in the 6th century, a fearsome Roman emperor, a despotic emperor, but a Christian emperor, but still despotic. Um, and it was he who really hardwired the hell doctrine. Now, in a very interesting YouTube interview with uh, Dr. Romelli, she was asked why Augustine won, if he was so wrong. And the first thing she said was the politics of fear. Because it is so convenient for the rulers to dominate their subjects through fear. And that's what Justinian wanted. He was a despot. And the doctrine of hell was really useful to him. So it's a, it's a very dark period of the church. Um, Can you comment on whether there's any connection between that and the fact that the whole of Roman law, which is the European tradition of law, came from Justinian? That's where Roman law begins. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, Could that affect the whole judicial system? To sort of, you know, yeah, Peter's question is what about the, the, the effect of that on Roman law um, and uh, the effect on the judicial system? The answer is I've got hunches, which you, would be similar to yours, but I've never studied it, where essentially Rome was a black and white um, system and the, the Cappadocian system was a mystery system of grey. Because Justinian's law was guilt until proven innocent too. Yep. The presumption of guilt. The presumption of guilt, yes. Just so, so, so I guess we're seeing there the, the social impacts of whatever you believe, because Christianity was so dominant. Anyway, that's... That's the story. Um, and by the way, uh, Dr. Romelli's going to write two more books. The first one she's written, which I'll refer to later, is a thousand pages long. Um, one of the next two will be tracing the influence of St. Augustine to the modern era. There's no question that we're looking at a fork in the road here. There is no question we're looking at a fork in the road that is now a long way apart with, I think, two contrasting views of who God is. That's where it comes down to. An angry God and a loving God. Um, a God that's fearsome or a God who is fundamentally benevolent in all he does. And in behind that, um, Augustine's view is, uh, that view of God is a view of the sinner. You know, the, the, the fundamental anthropology is we're born bad. The fundamental anthropology of uh, the Cappadocian fathers was where the, in the image of God. That dominated every analysis they did. What dominated every analysis Augustine did is that we're sinners. In behind that are fundamentally opposing views of creation. What was going on? What was the purpose of it? Fundamentally, it's not as if they were uh, shades of grey apart. It was oil and water, which we'll get onto. And very, very importantly, in behind that, a fundamentally different view of evil. In short, the heart of the Cappadocian Fathers was that evil did not exist. It was the absence of the good. The good was God and dominated all things and was the only thing that is eternal. And it's a total contradiction in terms to equalise good and evil. It's just logically, philosophically and morally 
um, wrong to equalise good and evil. So their view of benevolence is that the loving God must end up loving everything. And if there's an atom in the universe he doesn't love and can't show his love to, he's failed. That's their view. They had a massive view of the benevolence of God. The really interesting question that's emerging is this one. What happened before the fourth century? What did people think in the, in the New Testament and in the 100, 200, 300 years in between, the so-called patristic fathers? I'll finish with that. You can remember the uh, summary we did last time of um, Gregory. and the, I did one book only of Gregory's. Um, he's written other stuff. Uh, this was the, uh, the Making of Man and his epic view of the trajectory of the cosmos from beginning to end. The beginning is the origin of the cosmos built on the archetype of Christ. And I think you'll remember those... Who was here last time? Some beautiful poetic... I mean, Gregory was not only poetic, he had a phenomenal conceptual mind. And when he kind of talks about having read as much of him as I have, the difference is his book's 100 pages long and take, will take you like years to read. And Augustine, you can speed read and it's 1,000 pages long. Because you're just skating across the surface, whereas you read a paragraph of Gregory and you think, what on earth did I just read? And the scriptures that impelled Gregory and the others are the same ones that impelled me. They're the dominant scriptures in the Bible. Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 1. Epic statements like the whole world was made in Christ and God will sum up all things in Christ. These epic statements drove their thinking. Augustine never mentions them. They don't cross his bowels. From that beginning comes the end. And if I have a beginning like that, in the words of T.S. Eliot, in my beginning is my end and my end is my beginning, I must have an end that reflects all the purposes of the beginning. That's Gregory's view. Um, and um, from that, he, uh, with a lot of relentless intellect, pursues what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? And the, uh, the, the book pursues that in, uh, in, in, in a wonderful way where he's really talking about his, his, the very first words or epithet he uses to describe humanity in On the Making of Man is the royal rule. That's us. We are reflecting Christ's royal rule. So he then investigates what faculties do we need to do that. Uh, the man... Now, this quote down the bottom is worth bearing in mind. The man that was manifested at the first creation of the world and he that shall be after the consummation of all things, they both equally bear in themselves the divine image. That's a very typical um, patristic father statement. Or the, the simplest one, which is the simplest sentence that people will often Quote from the Patristic Fathers, God became man in order that man might become God. Let's look at the flow now of the city of God. I mean, it's a big book. No way I would be bothered reading it all, but um, here's the architecture of the city of God. City of God, he wrote between 413 and 427 AD. By the way, they never met each other because they were about a generation apart and they lived at opposite ends of the world. 
Cappadocian Fathers in Turkey, where the churches of Revelation were, they were Greek-speaking, uh, Augustine in Northern Africa. Augustine, this is incredibly important, did not read Greek and had no interest in Greek. And he was dealing with a dodgy translation of the Bible. Cappadocian Fathers obviously were Greek and read Greek. Upon that simple linguistic difference, a world of pain was bequeathed upon the Western Church. The first, like, one-third, books one to ten, he actually begins with Rome. What was happening in, in his time was Rome was beginning to be pillaged, was beginning to fall apart. The Goths were, you know, sacking Rome and, and he was, he loved Rome, he was very Roman and... He had to make a defence of Christianity because the pagans were saying, see what's happened to Rome. You Christians have taken it over and you've weakened it. And so he was defending um, the view that polytheism and paganism had made Rome great and Christianity had weakened it. So, you know, you'll have to know. He's, he's in constant dialogue with um, the Roman philosophers. Because the, the, the exiles who came back, uh, who, were, who were flooding into Africa from, from Rome, were saying, how can a Christian empire fall? So he's, he's got his feet firmly on the ground at the start of the book. What he then does is introduces the Christian view of things. He goes into the origin of man and the rise of the two cities. Now, straight away, if you're smart and you know the Bible and you're a sceptic like I am, there's a problem on that board. Where does this second city come from? But the whole book is dominated by two. There are not two cities in the Bible. There's one. It's Zion. It's the temple of God. It's the tabernacle of God. It's the new Jerusalem. I mean, there are cities like Babylon. and Yeah, but it's not equalized with Zion. You know, he, it's a, there's antitypes, but for him, the two cities are equal all the way through. And he's made that up. And he's really loosened his use of the scriptures. Um, then he goes on to the progress of the two cities, how they went through history. And then he has the ends of the two cities. So that's the structure. That's the entire book. That's the thousand pages. And the end of the two cities is the eschatology of what he calls the four last things, which are death, judgment, heaven and hell. That, that's the architecture. Now, very importantly, the reasoning throughout it all is he begins with the equalisation of the two forces of good and evil and their continuation. So guess what you're going to end up with? You're going to end up with heaven and hell. By equalising good and evil, you end up with heaven and hell. That diagram says it all. <coughs> that's the logic that drives through the book. And his words are, two loves have built two cities. Self-love in contempt of God built earthly cities. The love of God in contempt of self built the heavenly city. It's a beautifully paralleled statement. It's just wrong. But nonetheless, that is a very good evidence of his reasoning. So there you have the book. Um, what I intend to do in the talk is to go through that structure for you. Um, would it help anybody if you had a copy of that page to refer back to? Or was it? 
So I did do some photocopies. I just forgot to get them off the machine, but if it's worth it. Does anyone here know where our photocopier machine is? Yeah, thanks, James. Yeah, that should be about 20 or 30. And so, so we'll begin with, the, with essentially the origin of man. It looks promising. Looked promising to me. I thought this would be interesting. This is creation. This will be interesting. And, um, and that's where we'll begin for about half. Then we flip. I haven't done the progress of the two cities. Flip to the end on the ends of the two cities. The huge code error, there is, and, and by the way, on the board here, I've got the code errors from the, of um, creation and the code errors of the end. The first, and the first of the code errors is his, this is very, very, very important, which is, uh, this is Romelli. Another notable factor that I shall point out was Augustine's ignorance of the important semantic distinction in Greek between the two adjectives, Aeneas, which means otherworldly, long-lasting, um, of another age, of another era. It's always translated by that, not only by Bentley Hart, but by Tom Wright most of the time, by other people. They never use the word eternal. And ideas, eternal proper. So Greek had two words. They had a word that was for eternal, ideas. Aeneas, which is the word for eternal... Whenever you see in the king, it's eternal punishment, eternal... But the word there is... Um, is the Aeneas word, um, and there was a clear distinction. But that distinction was uh, lost in imprecise Latin translations of both adjectives with eternus, one word. They put the two words into one word, eternal, and completely blurred the dissimilarity between these two terms. That is a massive error, because in behind, the word eternal is a massive conceptual structure. It's not, it's not just like it's a word. There's a conceptual iceberg behind that, which we're going to go into behind that word eternal. If you get that, if you get that conceptual undercurrent wrong, everything else is wrong. Nobody doubts this, by the way. This is not in the least bit arguable that there was this um, massive mishandling of the word eternal. You remember um, that, that, that when we began in the second talk, I said the question about uh, yeah, what's the, in, uh, the destiny of individual souls was not a good question. A much better question is, is what house are you building? That's an entirely biblical question. I took it from Acts 7 where Stephen uh, threw that at his accusers. What house are you building? And clearly the house is the cosmos. This is incredibly important. The house is the cosmos. And by the way, the revival of the reading of Genesis 1 where the creation is seen as the cosmos. We're very fortunate to have such close connections with Rick Watts and Ian Proven, who are really world pioneers, particularly probably Rick Beginnett, of that concept that the cosmos is the house of God, deliberately so. So let's look at Augustine on creation. Um, it was, it's very clear for Gregory that the, the whole of creation is God's dwelling place. Um, it is equally clear that it was not for Augustine. The phrase, the city of God, never refers to the cosmos. It refers to heaven. Some joint outside of the cosmos that's not the cosmos. You just, you've got to get that in your head. That is a massive, massive disagreement. Augustine had no picture or image or vision of the cosmos Every jot of creation being the expression of God. 
He had a totally platonic view, for those of you who know Plato. He was seeped in Plato, and that was his view. So heaven is the escape hatch. It's somewhere else, and that's the city of God. So in this huge tome, I mean, you could read this huge tome called the city of God and not realize that, and you'd get it all wrong. He's talking about heaven, someplace, somewhere else, not here. Now, this... I drew an icon of that, which is uh, a split world. He therefore has a split world, which is the world of matter and the world of the spirit. And that little diagram that I've drawn up there will do you to understand a lot of his conceptual structure of reality. It comes out of that picture in his head. The view that the patristic fathers had was never dualistic. Everything was the word one. So... It would do us all good. One of the big words to study in the New Testament is the word one and all. 1 Corinthians 15, it says that God might be all in all. Right? And they took that really seriously. They're, my, As you know, Ephesians 1 dominates my life. I learn it off by heart. It's like peering down the corridors of eternity. And the high point of Ephesians chapter 1, we'll come to. Now, let's, before we do that, look at some of the... These are just some quotes, sentences from Augustine. The, now, when Augustine talks about the creation of the world, it's not a mystery to him. The problem for him is simply, all the time, the word eternal. How can an eternal God create a changing thing? That's what he talks about, chapter after chapter after chapter. And he says things like this. The creation of the world not outside of time, yet not the result of any change in God's design. That's a problem. Like, and he, so he goes on. So that's a heading in book 12. Why, this is the question, why did the eternal God decide to make heaven and earth? Gregory stopped there. That's his question. And his answer is to express my glory. And off he goes, no, 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 that's not the question. The question is at that particular time and not before. Why did he create it on Wednesday and not Tuesday? Because if he created on Wednesday, what was he thinking on Tuesday? He must have changed his mind. Pages and pages and pages are solving this puzzle for Augustine. That's the platonic puzzle. He's an unchanging God. How can he be involved in a changing world? That's what he investigates. Gregory never investigates it. Why did he do it? You're going to get different answers. If you ask the wrong question, you're going to get answers, unfortunately. So off Augustine goes, Tuesday, Wednesday, 3.30, Tuesday, whatever. Off he's off. Augustine is guess where? Sorry, Gregory is guess where? Gregory is in the love of God. Ephesians 1 verse 10 is a unified vision. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfilment. What? To bring to unity all things in him, all things in heaven, all things in earth. I mean, when the first time I read that when I was a teenager, I, my mind blew apart. I thought, is this hyperbole? How can you sum up the entire universe in one person? Perhaps it's hyper. It's exaggeration. He thinks a lot of Christ, so he's kind of gone overboard. No, no, it's literal. God will sum up the entire creation in the Logos. Where's the division in that? Now, that verse dominates this unitary view of the patristic fathers. Can you see the utter clash? Right, so very different views on creation. Very different views on good and evil. 
Um, we've already talked about the views of Gregory that good, that evil was merely the absence of things. They really were very philosophical about it. And the good is utterly attractive and no one will ever refuse it who understands it. They did not believe there were people inherently evil who hated the good. They said they haven't seen it yet. If you see God, you'll love God. That was the origins view. That was the view of Gregory. But Augustine equalized good and evil. And his background was Manichaean that equalized the forces of good and evil. And so many of the, of the myths of paganism, you know, begin with a struggle between good and evil and they're kind of like equal forces and that dominates life. So that's his diagram. Frankly, it reminded me and Anne of Bali because anywhere you go in Bali, you see those black and white tablecloths. That's what they are. That's a Balinese form of the yin-yang struggle, uh, archetypes of the universe, good and evil. He's nowhere but there. It's no different. It's a pagan view. Un, it's, it's a view not relieved by, by revelation. So that is going to be really important because I think that becomes very psychological. I mean, I'm not, I haven't gone into the confessions, but it's phenomenal, it's brilliant, and it's so revealing of a pathologically tormented person. The, the, the fight of good and evil is inside himself. When I was a young Christian, the kind of black dog, white dog, which is a platonic image, by the way, two parts of me, kill one, raise the other, that's exactly where Augustine is. It's wrong, but... but out of that personal psychology, he'd really extrapolated the equalization of good and evil. This is really, this, this I'm afraid, I've got to say, I, my jaw was dropping when I read this. I've got to say, it's nothing, you know, you can call it heresy or whatever. It is so bad, Augustine on humanity. I'm just, this is books 12 and 11. I'm just going to read you some of this. You've got to really let this in because you cannot believe this guy's writing it. I'm going to discuss the creation of man. I'm thinking, that's good. Let's go. That's one sentence. That's all you get. <laughs> For it will be apparent that the two cities took their origin from that creation. So, that, so there we go. The two cities are an extrapolation of my inner struggles. Okay, all right, fine. But as I have shown, before I go, let me talk about angels. From, as I have shown, the beginning of the two cities had already been seen in the angels. So I must say something about them first. Now, he doesn't say something. He goes on for pages on the angels. He never gets back to made the image of God. Never gets back to it. The image of God gets a sentence or two and he's off on the angels again. It's like bizarre. I'm thinking, what's wrong with this guy? He's, he's obsessed with angels. But it's heresy because we're made in the image of Christ, not angels. If you substitute the word Christ for angels, you'll get Gregory, but he never mentions Christ. I hope to demonstrate there's no incongruity in asserting a fellowship between men and angels. It's angels we have fellowship with, not Christ. Book 11, I have undertaken to treat the origin of the holy city and I must first deal with the holy angels. Here we go again. They form, listen to this, they form the great, greater part of the city. The city of God's filled with angels, not us. And the more blessed part, why? In that they have never been in a strange land, i.e. on the earth. Why? Because they were immortal and had spirits floating around, not like us with bodies, so they're better than us. I shall be at pains, he says, in the light of the scriptures. He says, I'm going to prove all this from the scriptures. And he totally fails. <laughs> like he says, 
when the screen, this is, this is so funny, like, oh, this is like a guy writing a bad essay who hasn't done the homework and it's just, frankly, I'm going to cane him for it. Because he says, I'm going to go to the scriptures. Now, I, he says, when the scriptures tell of the making of the world, I, I admit there is no explicit statement about whether the angels were created. You bet there weren't. But he finds it there because there's too much to quote. When God created heaven and earth, the word heaven, he was actually talking about the angels. He's on the angels again. How far is this from Gregory's vision of being made in the image of God? And it's, it's completely erroneous. But listen to this. This is, this is heretical. It's not just a little bit wrong. It is heretical. He created man's nature as a kind of mean between angel and beasts. Not God and man. We're not made in the image of God. We're made in the image of the angels. I wish he just said we are made in the image of angels. It's a bad translation from the Hebrew. It should have been we're made in the image of the angels. So that if he submitted to his creator, mankind should pass into the fellowship. I'm always waiting for the word Christ to pop in. I thought I was called for the fellowship of Christ. No, no, it's the fellowship of the angels attaining immortality like them. Does that, does that shock anyone else besides me? I mean, I could go on for pages and pages and pages. This is not, I haven't done any selective quoting. I was going to, you know I'm right, don't you? Because you've read lots of it. I think, what is this? He, he's in some fantasy land. It's not like a little bit wrong. So, he's a bit wrong on humanity. Therefore, this is incredible. You know, Romans 5, the love of God is pour, poured abroad in our hearts. Guess what? It's not our hearts, it's the angels' hearts. Therefore, we must acknowledge that the love of God poured into our hearts does not refer merely to holy men, but to the holy angels. This community is an assembly of mortal men destined to be united with Christ. No, 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 with the immortal angels. I wanted to do a word count of the number of times he mentions Christ in the last 150 pages versus angels. He does, he's, exactly, he's fighting a losing battle of trying to reject Platonism, but he's so infected by it. So go back to the fact that this guy won. This guy formed the Roman Church, 1,500 years of history. This guy influenced Calvin. This is the rot it's, that started it. I mean, I don't mind things being a little bit wrong, but this is a code error of huge magnitudes. Let's now go to the end. Hell. So now we're at the end uh, of all things. This is his picture. I'll tell you, I read this, and you were with me. I just said to Rick, we went to wine country with Rick Watts last week. I just said, this guy's a sociopath. I, I mean, I was chilled. I have, I, some of the most chilling stuff I have ever read. So I'm putting up the chapter headings. But by the way, the last two books, he said, I'll, I'll deal with hell first, then I'll deal with heaven. So this last book is all on hell. So here's the first chapter, or the third chapter. Can a physical body endure eternal pain? Got the eternal problem? What's the problem? Problem, you know, Peter, if I took your hand and I put it over the fire, it'll be excruciatingly painful, but at least it'll be, you'll die. If I burned you at the stake, it'll only be for 30 minutes. So to have a body, we will be destroyed. There's a problem with this. The problem. Now, if you and I read that, wouldn't the problem be, this is a terrible image? What's the moral? No, there's no moral problem. The problem's eternal. 
which is how can we get your body, which is a physical body, to suffer pain forever and not die? I mean, my jaw dropped when I read this. Like, how could anybody confront this as a question with no sense that this is an awful question? Anyway, he says the answer. Next one, instances in nature showing that bodies can live under instances of torture. That's a heading. Right? Without dying. So, yeah, look, he's just building it up that we'll burn forever and bodies will burn forever and they can't die. The problem is not, as I say, moral or compassionate. It's just this eternal problem. How can a body survive eternal pain? The om- then he says, you know what he says? Our God is so great he can do this. That's the heading. The omnipotence of the creator is the ground for belief in marvels. Now the marvels are not healing. It is that your body can burn forever. You know, the atheists have got a point, haven't they? I used to think that they didn't have a point, but I mean, they've got a point. Perhaps they read him. The outcome, the outcome is now hell, having cleared that ground of that little problem. The outcome is hell. So he talks about the nature of eternal punishment. The nature of eternal punishment. And he then raises the issues that are kind of actually quite modern. The proportion of the offence to punishment. It seems, Andrew, we talked about this, it seems kind of unfair that I disbelieve because someone ahead of me attracted in the street, it was a five minute decision to say no, but sorry, eternal. Now, there seems to be a disparity between the punishment and the crime. He gets rid of that one. That's what he's, he's just getting rid of that one there to say no disparity at all. Next one. The magnitude of the first offence blinds us. This is the, if only we knew how bad we were. The sin, the sin of Adam has blinded us to how bad it all is. Now he starts to confront, this is very interesting because it's very clear that he is living in a world where universal salvation is, if not orthodox, very much widely believed, because he starts to answer them. And by the way, Origen is one of the people he attacks. He never read Origen. He misread him. But um, Is hell only for purification? Now, that's exactly what the universalists say. They admit there's going to be judgment, and it's scary, but it's... All, but, but, and, and there are two words for judgment, I won't go into them, but the word for judgment universally used is a purification word in the New Testament. You can either have a punishment word or a pure, there are two words, and it was always the purification word. He gets rid of that. Mind you, remember, he couldn't read Greek. The opinion that punishment will not last forever, gets rid of that. The opinion all men are to be saved by the prayers of the saints. So the corollary of this is that he knew about universal salvation. Romelli claims, the Italian scholar, who is nobody's in her league for what she's done. Her book, which I, took her 16 years to write, it's a thousand pages long. If you want to buy it, I just have, it's $500. Um, yeah, I'll pay a copy for you. <laughs> and then I found out that God's judgment, Amazon, a block. <laughs> I, just, I got it just in time. Um, so, I don't know about you, but this is like chilling. I'm not making it up. I'm not sort of cherry picking. I mean, I, I had to cut so much of this out. Well, then he has this wonderful statement. Here it goes. Since God made the world so full of innumerable marvels, why should not God have the power to make the bodies of the dead rise again and the bodies of the damned to suffer torment in everlasting fire? I'm not quite sure how anyone can write that in one sentence. I haven't left anything out. 
this marvellous God. Look at the sunset. Look at the stars. Look at the trees. The God who did that, surely he can make us burn forever in hell. He can do anything. I wish, I wish a Calvinist in a gospel message actually did the full trick and quoted that at people. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Anyway, uh, to be honest, I, I, I've, got, I've been shocked by what I've read. You know, it's, I just think he's, he's only got by because people don't read it. Which, anyway, so draw a breath. I said I was going to be kind of even paced tonight and understated and I've failed again. Um, let's get on to the future. So having got rid of hell, that's the second last chapter, he moves to heaven, his picture of heaven. Um, which he says, I'm going to discuss the eternal bliss of the city of God. We have exactly the same problem that he sees that the angels and men, that this is actually a gathering place, that heaven is a gathering place to fill up the place of fallen angels. Right? That's what it's for. And we who are saved will kind of, let's supposing 60 Let's supposing 68% of the angels are good, we'll fill up the other 32%. That's, that's what he means by that. But incredibly importantly, his benchmark is the angels are not Christ. He says, but in this city, all the citizens will be immortal for humans will obtain that which the angels have never lost. There's nothing in this about Christ. Compare that to, to the right. The royal rule was, was Gregory. The nature of man is more precious than all of creation. Great as it is, the creation is, so to say, made offhand by the divine power existing at once by his command while counsel precedes the making of man. That's Gregory. What does the Bible say? Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there the Lord Jesus the anointed who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There's not angels in that verse. We're not made like angels. We're made like his glorious body. And we all know this, this is the theme of the entire New Testament. He says we will be like the angels. And then, as you would all know, the New Testament is very clear that we will rule angels. Paul says that and Hebrews says, ah, it's very clear, Hebrews 1 and 2 is very clear, are not angels ministering, but they're there to help us. We're the main game. This never crosses his mind. So he has a very narrow view of heaven. And this picture is, I think, a powerful one. It results in what I think is a sideline view of Christ. The diagram on the left is an attempt to sum up the patristic view that Christ will sum up all things in himself and present them to the Father so that God may be all and in all. Now, that phrase, that God may be all and in all, is the climactic phrase of 1 Corinthians 15. It's a magnificent paragraph, climaxing with Christ, having conquered everything, having conquered every enemy, hands them to the Father, and God is all and in all. And the fantastic words of Zechariah, the knowledge of God fills the cosmos like the waters cover the, 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 uh, the earth, right? That, so there's a picture there that Christ has taken all of creation in himself into the Father. Augustine's view is Christ is a vehicle, some kind of um, in instrument, not the archetype, 
and not that to which we will be conformed. He sort of saved us so that we can be made like the angels. So Christ becomes our lifeline, whereas for, for the patristic fathers, Christ is our archetype. He is our destiny. He is our identity. I mean, he has got a nice sentence or two about the saving work of Christ, but you could read through that last... The last chapter, the one which I'm quoting, is about 120 pages long, and you'd be <coughs> flat out to find. I just wanted... I didn't have time to see, does he mention Colossians? Does he mention 1 Corinthians? Does he me- No, nothing, nothing. And Christ just gets the most cursory of mentions. He only mentions Christ uh, to prove the evidence of the resurrection. This gets a bit... This is really tricky, but... I think the picture on the right says that all the balloons, right? This is really, I think this is very valuable because the corollary of this is what the resurrection of the body really means. Because I think a lot of people actually have subliminally Augustine's view, but they can't articulate it. And it's a very unreconstructed view. So what he writes is this, the, the heading, can earthly bodies be transferred to heaven? That's his heading. See the problem? The same problem. How can a mortal body get up into heaven? That's the balloons, by the way. Well, the answer is the soul. Right? Just putting it bluntly, our body's like a balloon and the soul will inflate our bodies and up will go. So if you bear that in mind, then this is what he said. Why then, if it is the will of the same God who made this living creature, why cannot an earthly body be raised up, a heavenly body, that sounds good, if the soul which belongs to a more exalted order, ah, do you get that? That's Plato. The soul is a more exalted order of being than anybody, including a celestial body. So an immortal soul is better than anybody, including a celestial body. Get it? He just can't get Plato out of his bones. Even a heavenly body could be linked with an earthly body. So immaterial souls are superior to celestial bodies. What's the resurrection of the body? It's nothing more than the inflation of the body by the soul. Does that make sense? And I think a lot of us kind of got that picture of the resurrection that it, it, as I, you know, when it dawned on me, and I was a very young Christian, I was just reading 1 Corinthians 15, I was kind of skipping through the tulips, and something got, this is a miracle of physics and chemistry. Like, molecules and matter will be recreated, you know. He, had, he just didn't have that view. So that ends up with a very new, this is, this is important to get this in our heads. It's a, he comes out with a very neutral view of the resurrection of the body. This is really, really important. Immortality for Augustine, is a morally neutral state, like wallpaper. For me, for years and years, and Gregory, it is actually the life of God. (laughs) To be immortal is only Christ's. But if it's a morally neutral state, then I can be immortally evil and immortally good. You see how I've got to have that to get... Because it always struck me, hang on, how can you have eternal hell? Eternal is the life of God. Like, really, you have to say, how could the body of the resurrected body of Christ burn forever in hell? That's what he. And so, what he has in the diagram, you've got the immortal soul. Body one dies, and body two rises, inflated by the soul. Body two is not that much better than body one, bit better, but the real thing is the immortal soul gets in and blows us up like a balloon. This, thus, earthly bodies will be animated by the inflow of immortal souls. That's what's going to happen. And the body is not transformed. No concept of the transformation of the body to be like Christ's glorious body. And this obscures and thus avoids the logical inconsistency of hell. 
which is how on earth can you have an eternally resurrected body burning forever? Does that make sense? He never confronted that problem. His problem was how do you make a physical body burn forever? And thus, um, neutral bodies are animated by immortal souls and can suffer evil forever. So that, I think, is the conceptual framework that lets him get into hell. And it's got flaws at every level. It's linear. I mean, he does, I kid you not, talk about haircuts and fingernails and fat and thin people, and that's one of the headings. Because remember, we can't have change in heaven. What about fingernails? Because you, you cut your fingernails ever? So they grew, so they changed. So how are they going to get there? And when you get there, will they be short or long, your fingernails? And what about all the fat people who want to be thin and the thin people who want to be fat? He goes on for a few pages about this. This incredibly linear view of an untrans... He's not got the picture of Christ's resurrection body in mind. It's, it's actually... It's actually, it's really a, a, an extension to absurdity of, um, of his thinking. Well, uh, that legacy leads us with a view of God. This is now where I'll finish. An incredibly aloof view of God and a dualist view of reality and, a, and uh, something I, I'm only going to just touch on, a neglect of the divine glory. Um, this is uh, the paper by David Bradshaw. And Bradshaw says, the divine glory has been neglected by a seeming conspiracy of neglect among philosophers. The cause lies in a framework for thinking about God that was articulated by Augustine and adopted by the medieval Western church. The Cappadocians succeeded in doing justice to the divine glory in a way that Augustine did not. And having read the Cappadocian Fathers on divine glory, that is no understatement. The dominant picked the dominant model which they thought about again and again and again was Moses and the burning bush. And Ron, you remember you told us when we did Zimzum, it's very Zimzum, they were right. Because I can remember you said, Exodus 33, that since the Jews did not have the New Testament, they went right back to Exodus 33 for centuries to try and resolve their mystery. How can God be physically present? Well, I've now found the Cappadocian Fathers did not make that mistake. That's what they asked themselves. And their dominant um, theory of glory came out of the encounter with Moses. Um, the divine glory and the divine energies open up a way of thinking about God that is far better suited than that of Augustine for articulating the basic contours of biblical revelation. That's a very powerful sentence. Now, Bradshaw's, he's, he's very quietly spoken, not like me. Um, and much more gentle than what he says. Uh, he's had an interesting trajectory. I can't go into it because this will be another massive talk. But his training is in physics. And physics is the study of energy. And then he came across the word energia, which is the Greek word. For, whenever you see the work of God, the word in the Greek is energia, the energy of God. And he became fascinated by the energy of God and how is God working and how is God present. These two diagrams say it all. If you have a dualistic concept of God, put bluntly, God cannot be present on the earth. So, in the burning bush, when the three men, angels, met Abraham, when the fourth man was in the fire, was it God or was it not God? 
Augustine's answer was it was not God. It could not be God because God is simple in his word and cannot be divided. Whereas the Cappadocian said it is God, the presence of God. And that means God is present with me in a far more participatory way than I could ever imagine, which gets to this. That diagram down the bottom uh, actually is, is, is really the Cappadocian theory. Because the big mystery is how God will re relate to creation, but he will. The outcome of the relationship is glory. Glory is our participation with God. That was their view. Glory is us seeing God and participating with him. And what's the driver of it all? What did they think drove the universe was grace. That's, that's a model of the Cappadocian. And if you want the arrow, that's divine energies. So they expected to see God working everywhere. And Basil on the gifts of the Holy Spirit is just breathtaking. <coughs> breathtaking and so gentle. Every quiet thought, every slight moment is God breathing. They could, God is everywhere for them, to be noticed everywhere. Um, look, it gets a bit worse than that, which is the magisterial view of God, where aloof turns nasty. This is an interesting book, 1899. The book is called Universalism, the Prevailing Doctrine of the Christian Church During Its First 500 Years. Now, there you can see the thesis. Read it again. The Prevailing Doctrine of the Christian Church in Its First 500 Years. Now, People can look at that and say it's written in 1899. Times have changed since then, and we'll get to that in a moment. But here's what he says. Pretty tough. Augustine was the great fountain of error, destined to adulterate Christianity and change its character for long ages. His life was destitute of the paternal relations on which society rests. He had no father. And which our Lord makes the fundamental fact of his religion, the fatherhood of God. He transferred to God the characteristics of semi-pagan kings and his theology was a hybrid born of the Roman code of law and pagan mythology. After Justinian, the Greek influence contracted and the Latin and Roman power expanded. Latin became the language of Christianity and Augustine's system and followers used it as the instrument of moulding Christianity into an Africo-Romano heathenism. The apostles and Nicene creeds were disregarded and the Augustinian inventions of original and inherited depravity, predestination and endless hell torments became the theology of Christendom. Now that's pretty sobering because I think he's basically right. Now when, I mean, and let me tell you that in my prediction this will grow and grow as a topic because so many intelligent people, I think it's... The, the reason is, I think what Andrew, you said, that people who've got this all the time are the atheists. The unbelievers get that the flip side of this gospel is kind of dark. And we say, no, it doesn't matter, God's loving, he'll handle it. And I said, so it was actually a bigger problem than that. I said, no, it's not a bigger problem. I think they're right, it is a bigger problem than that. So the, the um, more and more people are putting very, a lot of thought, which is a good thing. I just think it's, for whatever reason, it's the times we're in. But certainly uh, some of the people interviewed say this is going to become the big debate of the next 10 years. Because stuff moves there. Like Tom Wright, he's moving there, but he's frightened to take the next step, to be honest with you. But once you get rid of heaven, which he's rightly done, and it's the new heaven and the new earth, well, why didn't you get rid of hell at the same time, Tom? I mean, they were a pair the whole time. And, and you fit hell into your system of the new heaven. It doesn't work. Made in the image of God, which is very... How's this going to work with this view of torment and so on? 
Oh, yeah. And even in the system, he, he gave a little bit more college last night. And even he, you know, was, was erring more on to, I think I know the people asked about Callum judgment. He said, yeah, our judgment's there, but, but, it's, but, but Christianity is more, it's a hope. Um, and it was more that these positive things, you know, hope and grace. Correct. Yeah. You know, and that's what he was. That's what he was talking. Well, about. I think a lot of people have been like where I suspect he is. If I if I were to put myself back over the last ten years, I was where he was. With it, it can't be. There's got to be our way out. But I don't know what it is. I guess that's mm -hmm. how I was thinking. Whereas, you know, I think I think the first confronting thing was when I listened to an interview with Bentley Hart about a year ago, and he's interviewed by this guy, and the guy said, uh, "Well, you're going on record as saying most Christians believe in an awful God." What do you mean? That was the opening question. He just laughed and said, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious? This hell thing? Like, where's this come from? Now, so I think that the good part of this is that, to be honest with you, it unlocks a magnificent gospel. As Anne and I say, this is very good news. I mean, there's a lot of so what's and things to be thought through, and I'm not saying there aren't, but... It, it's, it's, it's very, very, very positive. Um, if we think it's too harsh, let's look at the Calvin. Like, how is it that Calvinism and Calvinist is an epithet for Orthodox Christianity? Like, how many people know about his treatment of Michael Servetus? One. So let's tell the story. I presume there are plenty of others in his jurisdiction. Servetus was a, what we'd probably call a heretic. But he, Servetus was outstanding because he kept goading and goading and goading until they said, okay, you come back, we'll, we'll deal with you. All he wanted was a debate. He still came back. He still, he still came back. All he wanted was a debate over major Christian doctrines. He wanted a debate. He made the mistake of going back to Geneva. So they arrested him, put him on trial and sentenced him to death. Calvin's... Calvin remarked he would have liked to see his eyes scratched out by chickens and he argued for execution. Now Calvin's mercy was he said let's decapitate him rather than burn him at the stake. So this is, this is not King David like in, uh, you know, an Iron Age king before Christ. This is after 1600 years of Romans and 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, just How is it that this man is synonymous with Protestant isn't this a problem? People were killed for all sorts of stuff then too. They did. I know that. There was a social norm. There was a social norm. They had no practice in government. They had no practice in government. There's a lot that you... Yeah, I'm, I, no, I can't excuse him. Sorry, anyway. Whatever. There's a, there's a logical... I mean, it's, it's chilling. I mean... Just practice after that if they never did. So anyway... Uh, heresy? What was his heresy? When he denied the Holy Spirit or something like that? It was... Non-Trinitarian. He was a Unitarian. Yeah, it was a non-Trinitarian. Fundamental. Yeah, the fundamental. And we'd say he's wrong, but he was not like he wasn't an atheist. I don't know what they would have done with an atheist, but he was. And and, and the poor guy, as Peter said, he just wanted a debate. He didn't he didn't attack anyone. He didn't murder anyone. He was just okay. So let's uh, let's leave that there, um, and let's finish where we began, which was what about the time before the fork in the road? Uh, Romelli is very interesting. She's a perky woman. She's passionate about origin. She's incredibly educated, visiting professor everywhere. And uh, 
Anne's listened to it. She's, she's, she's so kind of bubbly, isn't she? But she loves this topic and she loves God. And she, uh, in this interview, uh, was asked where her theories began. She said, well, she's, she's very, very exhaustively trained in Greek and Roman philosophy. And she was coming into a reading of origin and the dominant position was the one that I think I even began saying was that universal salvation was a minority edge position. She read that in books and pamphlets. And the more she read the original manuscripts, the wronger and wronger and wronger that became. And 16 years of study later, that's the $500 book, The Christian Doctrine of Apocatasis. Apocatasis? Got it. Apocatasis. My wife's been tutoring me. The K-A-T-A is like catastrophe. So it's catastrophe. Oh, forget it. Yeah, I know that, but don't get an argument on pronunciation with my wife in the room, please, Peter. <laughs> um, this is what Steve Neems from Fuller Theological Seminary wrote about the book just published, right? Very conservative. Ilaria Romelli's tome, the result of almost 15 years of scholarly research, is a labour of manifest erudition and capability. Addressing in impressive detail texts written within the span of a thousand years, translating and commenting upon varied sources in Latin, Greek, Coptic, Syrian and Ethiopian, the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis documents the development of the doctrine of universal salvation or closely related notions through the first millennium of the Christian church. It is the most complete work ever dedicated to this subject. The evidence brought forth is compelling. The conclusion is the doctrine of apocatastasis is, quote, a Christian doctrine and is grounded in Christ. An authentically Christian or Jewish Christian doctrine and fundamentally orthodox. Regularly espoused in defence of orthodoxy against the heresies of the times. So it has moved to the mainstream. So Gregory wasn't on the edge of things. But even if you thought Gregory was on the edge of things, let's go back to where I began, and this is the last point. The Cappadocian fathers rescued the Trinity. They solved the problem of the Arians by their grace, intellect and brilliance. They structured the Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed was first written by Athanasius in 321, the Council of Nicaea, then followed 60 years of debate because people think that the Council of Nicaea was a slam dunk and the Trinity got through. It didn't, such that when Athanasius died, he felt so hounded that on his grave was written, anyone know? Contra mundum. Contra mundum, against the world, like he thought everyone was against him. The gentle... And by the way, universally, the Cappadocian fathers are understood to be men of great gentility. They're from a very wealthy family. There's a family of nine of them. As I've said before, it appears the most brilliant of all was the elder sister Macrina. Um, they, they were a, a, a just a, a, one of, they're like, they were like the um, Clapham sect. You know, they just had huge land holdings, but they just dedicated everything to Christ. They set up hospitals, but they were very gentle persuasive people and they won the day let's look at if we i mean i think the evidence is quite clear where is hell in the apostles creed and the nicene creed where is endless torment 
in the Apostles' Creed. This is what the church saw. They're going to carve in stone like the new Ten Commandments is what they're going to believe in. The Nicene Creed was fine-tuned and adopted and re-edited by, guess who, Gregory of Nyssa at the Council of Constantinople in about 380. Who presided over the council? This is like, let's imagine there's some kind of council today. All the evangelicals get together, they're going to work on some big doctrinal issue and there's a president of the council. You would expect that president would be a non-dangerous person, wouldn't you? Espousing orthodoxy. There's going to be a chief architect who's going to be the writer of the manifesto. You would expect that person is going to reflect the views of the time. Well, guess who was the president? Gregory of Nazianzen. And the writer was Gregory of Nyssa. So to me, it's a slam dunk that the church viewed, that they were well known with, as universal salvationists, their, their views as orthodox. Sorry? So he's the second. The, the, uh, he's, their he's their mate. The, count, the Cappadocian fathers were a threesome. Brothers were Gregory of Nyssa and Basil. And their mate from university was the other Gregory of Nazianzen. So they, the three of them were the Cappadocian fathers. I mean, you can read it. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's interesting to read this in the light of what we've just been through. And of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, this is Jesus, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Seems like a very creational beginning to me. Who, for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. By the way, uh, this was fiddled with in the 8th century to reduce the Holy Spirit. Filioque, yep. So our modern one was corrupted to... Uh, in the 7th and 8th century from what the original text was because they had the Holy Spirit very co-equal. Um, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and Gregory added this sentence in particular, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. No hell. No, no. The judgment, these guys were very big on judgment and, and, and accountability. That They didn't in any way try and whitewash that, but there's no hell. And the same with the Apostles' Creed. So to me, it's pretty obvious that the early church, I guess where, I, where I'm now of the opinion is I think the early church were seeing through a glass darkly, but it wasn't like the hell option was the one they saw it through. They saw it through the option of, the recreation of all things. And, you know, I think there's probably, you know, some varying views, but the, the, the idea of eternal torment was, an in, was, a, was very much uh, 
a latter-day thing which unfortunately was mainstreamed by Augustine. I think we know where it is. It's um, Peter would know which the filioque where, where it comes in. Which which I forget when, but the filioque which is and the son of Latin is filioque, um, and that's added by the West, I understand, and I think it's one of the causes of the great schism. It was. It proceeds. From proceeds. The, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. If you think about it, that, is subordinating the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. That's why it was put in. Um, so you just take that out, and you've got the original. Yeah, that's all. That's all. Just that clause. That's correct. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, and the son. So, and they, I remember having discussions with someone about this, and they said, "Well, in the scriptures, and it shows 